0: Land. On this evening's show, we'll be discussing calf exports with Board B's Joe Burke, the outlook for new tractor sales with the FTMTA's Gary Ryan, and how to deal with lameness on dairy farms with Waterford Vesh Ger Cusack. But first, it's been a challenging period for calf exporters. Here's Brefney O'Brien's report.
1: We visited Wicklow Calf Company's yard in Arklow, County Wicklow to see what the process of sourcing and exporting Irish dairy bull calves involves.
2: This is our export point uh, where we get all our calves ready to go to the continent. All, all our calves is bought on farm. We don't buy no calf in the market at all. And it's not about that we're anything again the markets, right? It's just the people we buy the calves for. It's a welfare thing here that we like bringing our calves in fresh. Yeah. What we do, we have different days for different areas in the yeah. south. I and in mean, calving Monaghan and back to Wexford country and back into the south, right? We go to Holland, we go to Spain, and uh, we go to Italy yeah. sometimes, yeah? Now, the market is going to open up in Poland now for the calves. Please God, that when we get the just all done that there'll be more space here to get into it. I think the Polish market is going to be a big player in the whole calf business. What's happening today is we're getting calves ready for Holland and we're getting calves ready for Spain. Right? When the calves come in, everything is graded, we check everything out. We, all our continental calves is taken out for our own trade, right? and uh, the freezers then are put into different pens.
1: Seamus explained that in order for his calf export business to be successful, the highest of welfare standards must be implemented during all of the stages involved.
2: All the calves receive two litres, two litres of uh, milk. The milk is all mixed here. We have we mix all our milk at 50 degrees. We feed at 40, so we mix only enough milk to do so many calves, so the milk won't get cold. So the calves, the whole time, the temperature of the calves is correct. We have everything right that we can have the temperature right the whole time that the calves are never too hot and they're never too cold the lurries have to come into the yard and the department then comes and checks all the lorries checks the water is working the fans are working right then we come along bed the lorries get the lurries all back into their different positions all them are have all fans temperature controlled right they've all drinkers on the lorry there so the calves can drink if they're thirsty the department has set down the guidelines like right on the, on the welfare and we adhere to it 100% because we're very much into the welfare of the animals because our business totally depends on how good our last shipment of calves is. We load up our lorries and accordingly, right, and away then we head for the boat
1: Seamus explains what his customers look for when buying the calves off him.
2: Number one welfare. Number two quality. Number three price. Okay, when the calves come off the trucks in Sherbourne, the minute they land off the boat, they go straight to the leverages, the calves are all backed in, everyone is allocated a space in the leverage, they're allocated the pens. The calves comes off, the sheds are nice and warm when the calves go in.
1: He believes that the calf export trade is of huge importance to Irish agriculture, but outlined the calf export numbers must continue to increase.
2: We need the dairy farmer very badly, but the dairy farmer needs us guys that's exporting and selling the calves. We need an extra six trucks. That's what we need per sailing.
0: Joe Burke, Senior Manager for Meat and Livestock at Board BIA joins us now. Joe, thanks for coming in to us. No problem, sir. Um Joe, I'm going to get onto the situation in Sherbrooke in a couple of moments, but first, can you just outline the stage we're at with calf exports this year.
3: So yeah, we have obviously got um to the middle of March clear. Typically the peak of exports take place during the month of March, March and, and April, uh, which obviously coincides with the peak availability of dairy bred calves. So for the year to date total live exports are up by about a third. Um so to the beginning of March we've exported 40,000 head of cattle altogether and 30,000 of them approximately have been calves. So similarly, calf exports would also be up by approximately a third. And the big markets to date have been the Netherlands. There have been 15,000 calves exported to date to the Netherlands, and uh, that's an increase of 50%. Spain has taken 12,000 Irish calves, and that's an increase of 20% on last year's levels. And the other markets then after that being the likes of Italy, France, um, Belgium, and uh, even Poland has taken some Irish calves as well. So, you know, really facing into over the coming, you know, month or so, a uh, very busy period for our live exports. Obviously, in the calf category, it represents a very important outlet and an alternative source of competition for these animals um, because really we're looking at much, much higher numbers maybe than would have been the case going back four or five years ago uh, since the significant dairy expansion.
0: And Joe, recently the minister announced that there is additional space in Cherbourg for 400 more calves. Um, a lot of exporters are not happy with that. Farm organizations are not happy with that. Um, is 400 enough?
3: So the reason that the announcement for an additional 400 sp- spaces, Claire, uh, have become available is that one of the leirage operators in Cherbourg and uh, near where uh, the Irish trucks arrive into from the ferries, He made an investment in the business in order to extend uh, his his layered sheds, um, and uh, those additional spaces have now come on stream. So that brings the total capacity closer to four and a half thousand calves, Irish calves per day, um, in those sheds, um, which is a nice improvement. It's it's a slight increase there. It obviously means that that's an additional lorry load of calves, approximately three hundred calves are delivered uh, on each truck. Um, But um, exporters, as you pointed to there, would still prefer some additional capacity there given the numbers of calves which um, they are being offered um, currently. So there are three sailings a week. Um, So that brings our our weekly capacity closer to um, and even exceed 13,000. As opposed to just around 12,000 where they would have been previously
0: and but is the 400 enough then is there do we need more
3: well there would be demand at this time during this peak uh, availability period for higher numbers than that clear certainly exporters would argue that they would be able to send out bigger numbers than what they are currently doing under their current capacity. Obviously, uh, the weather conditions have been an issue recently as well too, where in the last few weeks we have seen sailings uh, being canceled or livestock trucks basically not being permitted um, to board um, the the ferries just because of the weather conditions and the rough sea conditions. So that just meant that there was backlogs uh, in exporters on premises um, before they were able to get them out and export them.
0: Joe, you've been out there assessing the situation in Cherbourg. Um, how significant is the backlog of Irish calves in Ireland now at the moment, and is there need for Abbeville to open up for for Laird space?
3: So yeah, that's right, Claire. We visited um, that is uh, Bourbille along with my my uh, market colleagues in our Paris office. Uh, Travelled down to Cherbourg and met with Larrig operators there in order to just. Assess the situation I suppose and that the bottleneck as it is currently and the available space there and to look at Potential solutions. Obviously some of those are longer term um, but Irish exporters they're 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 always going to try and get the maximum potential that they can and uh, less restrictions in terms of availability of spaces out there and they have a lot of different factors to contend with including um, obviously spaces on board the vessels so sailing boat out of Rosslare and now Dublin as well too and the trucks as well too it's not just that they can ring up a a, a, a transport company and and get. Um, export trucks um, at at very short availability. It all has to be coordinated. And now as well, two spaces in the Lairage and Sherberg. So there's a lot of different factors there for them to contend with. And And
0: Abbeville, does Abbeville need to be opened?
3: So basically regulation one of 2005 means that uh, under the uh, export conditions, once the animals arrive in their port, of, of destination, if you like. So once the calves arrive, in this case, all of our calves arrive into the port of Cherbourg, under this EU regulation, they have to be lairaged uh, in the immediate vicinity of that port. Now, while there is some flexibility and obviously um, practical conditions have to have to prevail, um, but Abbeville is about uh, almost 300 kilometres away from Cherbourg. So it's a journey of up to four hours. It just goes a bit too far outside of that that guideline or, or that EU regulation. So
0: that's on animal welfare grounds, as it's- Minister Creed has been highlighting that that's going to be an issue there. Um, Persfield Brothers also recently, um, we were talking to them and they said that there was a boat, um, possibly a walk-on, walk-off boat, uh, available there for calf exporters um, to maybe alleviate some of the the pressure that's building up. Um, Yet it doesn't seem to be a runner.
3: Claire, I suppose that comes down to the exporters' current preference themselves, for operating on just uh, a roll-on roll-off system. So they load the calves themselves on board the trucks from their own um, export premises. And uh, from there then they they travel on board the, the roll-on roll-off or the, the ferry option um, to Cherbourg. And at least then they're on board the same truck um, all the way from the exporter's unit uh, to the customer in the Netherlands or in Spain. Um, Talking to some of them, they feel that um, it would be a bit more difficult logistically to manage the loading of the calves um, onto a walk on, walk off um, vessel and then unloading them and and loading them onto a different truck or potentially the truck might might, uh, travel empty and then pick up the calves on the other side. So there are a few logistical challenges and obviously, the management of the calves um, is is another factor as well too um, that would have to be have to be thought of and have to be looked after. It is a possible solution, but currently the exporters their preference would be to continue, I suppose, exporting in, in the way that they have been doing.
0: And I know there's lots of talk at the moment about setting up a possible exporter body representing all the all, all the exporters, and maybe that could push it through. Just the W B Yates uh, that has come on stream this week is that going to alleviate the pressure or Kind of, is there any room there for additional capacity on that boat?
3: So Irish ferries have put the, as you say, the wbe It's a large vessel. It's going to be also traveling from Dublin to, into the same port, into Cherbourg. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't solve any of the capacity issues, Claire, because it's actually sailing on the same uh, transport days on a Tuesday, a Thursday and a Saturday. Um, so for the short term, it isn't a solution in terms of getting out additional numbers of calves this spring.
0: Uh, Joe, finally, last question. Um, uh, we're looking at dairy expansion still at the moment. The herd is growing. This is a recurring issue for us with calves coming on stream and the beef sector as well aren't as inclined to maybe bring in calves from the dairy herd to to rear them as well for beef. Um, Long term, what are the solutions for us on this Sherberg issue? obviously more facilities are needed over there in Cherbourg, who's gonna pay for them?
3: So yeah, you have two layerages in Cherbourg, Claire. Uh, both of them are privately owned businesses um, and they have already invested themselves um, to, 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 to varying degrees um, in order to you know, keep their, their facilities up to a very high standard. Um, they have indicated and in discussions that they would be willing to look at further expansion. Um, But historically in the past, even within the last decade, um, there would have been funding available or some subsidization available uh, from European programs. So their preference would be uh, to to avail of of, uh, any potential funding that that might be available. Obviously it would be linked to having high quality facilities and continuing to look after um, the welfare of the animals. Um, But currently there are no such support uh, funding mechanisms available. So that is something that obviously that they're pushing for. Um, but it would be great if um, some additional capacity could be made available um, for, you know, certainly if it's not going to happen this year, hopefully uh, for, for next spring, that all of, all of this could be ready and uh, in motion.
0: Joe, we're out of time. Thanks very much for coming into to us. Thanks,
3: Claire. No problem.
0: Next up, as tractor sales plummet in the UK, we asked some of the key players in the Irish market what they think of the situation. Here's Nile Taffy.
4: Despite relatively healthy and recovering sales of new tractors, many farmers and contractors are struggling with significant price rises for new equipment, especially larger tractors. At the recent Farm Machinery Show in County Kildare, we spoke to some familiar faces from the Irish machinery trade to find out how business was faring, looking from the inside out. First up is Sean Byrne from KSIH, he told us how 2018 finished up, and looks ahead as 2019 unfolds.
5: We finished off the year very well, very strong, our market share is up and we're pushing into this year. Every year of course brings its own challenges, so we'll see what this year brings. We have a range of tractors to suit everybody, certainly we have a low horsepower tractor there in the farmalls, which is going very well for us, but the contractor takes a much bigger a higher horsepower and we'll be pushing them too. This is the 145 maximum. it's one tractor of the year, we're pushing this hard this year, brand new transmission, very, very close to the CVX transmission, very quiet, very smooth, and anyone that has one now is very pleased with it, so should be a good seller for us.
4: Next up is Lemkin's Derek Delahunty. He talked about how demand for tillage equipment is shaping up, and what machines farmers and contractors are actually buying.
6: Hey, business has been very good for us. Like, you know, we've seen we've seen a lot of growth over the last number of years. Last year again, we hit a record year in sales in Ireland. A lot of our machines that are going out there now are, are, are I suppose, helped along by the fact that we've got the TAMS grants that are out there. We're selling a lot of cultivators, you know, a lot of a lot of the bigger drills and sprayers and machines like that are moving very, very well. There's been a lot of changes in the whole the whole farming practice. Like I, I'm with Lemkin in Ireland now with seven years, and you know, and you can see the gradual progression the whole time that there's more of an emphasis now on technology there's less fear there. People want Isobus, they want, they want all that goes with it. They want to be able to do variable seed rating. We've got Isobus ploughs now on the market, you know, that have been out there and working very successfully. So you can see a change in the trends and, and all that along. So to be fair, we do a good range. Yes, like, you know, like if we look at our sales figures, we are selling more of the bigger machines, so the contractors are a very important part of that market. The contractors are out there, they're looking to get machines that are going to get, get through the acres at, at a very good, cost-effective way, so we'll be selling a lot of the 4-meter one passes, the 5-meter one passes. Six furrow plows are no more common than four furrow plows.
4: We also spoke to Tanko's Angus Lacey to get the perspective from an Irish-based manufacturer.
7: Yeah, I would say the uh, business has been uh, very good for us over the past three to four years. Uh, TANCO, I would say, predominantly exports 90% of its products around the world. We're exporting to probably 36 countries. Uh, in Ireland we have seen strong growth, particularly in the uh, the bale wrapping section, um, particularly in high-speed uh, contractor machinery. Uh, we've seen that, uh, that section grow and, and we're focusing now on those individual bale, uh, let's say farmers who are uh, wrapping bales uh, with our A100EH uh, uh, model now. Which focus, as I say, on that individual farmer. I think Tanko has been a strong brand in the Irish uh, market, I would say, for the past. It was founded in 1963 and has been around as a strong player in the market since, uh, since then, I would say. We're constantly developing where, I would say, Tanko will be considered a, an innovator in the market space that we are in, which is bale wrapping and, and handling equipment. Um, you know, our, uh, in 2008, we launched the, uh, the I-73 bale shear, which uh, not only can split the bale, uh, but also holds the plastic. Uh, we we're the first to develop that system and bring it to the market. Uh, and uh, it continues, I would say, to be a, a market leader in that.
0: Gary Ryan, the CEO of the FTMTA, has joined us in studio. Gary, thanks for coming in to us. Thank you, Claire. Um, Gary, at the moment, we've seen a significant drop in UK new tractor sales um, over the last month. Um, but at the same time in Ireland, uh, tra- new tractor sales have been relatively healthy. Um, over the months ahead, what would you say the outlook is like?
8: Yeah, Claire. I suppose the UK tractor, they, they, their, their tractor sales, the sales new tractors fell back fairly considerably in February. I suppose it should be looked at in the context that sales of machinery, of agricultural machinery in the UK, had reacted rather strangely to Brexit. After the the, the Brexit vote, now two and a half, nearly three years ago, sales machinery in the UK actually went up. A lot of that was to do with the devaluation in sterling. Uh, the fact that the English farmer was getting a single-farm payment denominated in euros, he was in a strong buying position. So they obviously decided to spend that single-farm payment while they still had it on machinery. I suppose as they get a bit closer to the, to the final, the end game of Brexit, whatever shape that's gonna take, they're probably, you know, maybe looking to a world where their single farm payment is not guaranteed forever, even though obviously the English government is guaranteeing them a payment for the next couple of years. So I think the the drop that we've seen is a drop on an artificial kind of high that was, was caused by non-agricultural reasons, if you like. Our own sales here are going very well. Last year, 2018, was the best year we had for tractor sales. In, in over 10 years since the start of the, the, the recession, nearly 10, nearly 2,000 new tractors. You know, in 2010, there was 1,300 new tractors, which is our worst year probably ever. And um, this year has started very well, January and February, we're we're pretty much on par with January and February of last year. Looking forward, um, I think the UK thing, you know, the shape of English agriculture is probably gonna change. The requirement for mechanization will still be there, but maybe not to the extent that they've had in the past. Um, Irish Irish machinery sales, again, obviously look, we're gonna be very reliant on what happens in relation to the UK, but the indications at the moment as our farmers are making the investment in mechanization, we think that will continue. The second-hand market from the UK that has had a big that's always a factor in the Irish market, whether that will continue to be as much of a factor.
0: I was just actually going to to ask you about that, uh, Gary. So we, we might be looking at big currency fluctuations depending on Brexit, which might tempt farmers and contractors to to go over to the UK market to buy, you know, used equipment instead of and of bypassing essentially the, the local dealers. Um how could that affect tractor sales here? I
8: suppose what you've seen coming from the UK over the years, and that has always been a factor of the market here, um, is, is the, um, particularly around tractors, maybe not so much on implements. and, and But in, in recent years, a, a huge amount of that imported used machinery is actually going through the dealer network. Not as much of it is going privately. That kind of is a factor of regulations on, on registrations of second-hand tractors tightened up a lot. It made it maybe an awful lot more cumbersome for a private individual to do a private import. It's easier like, to, to source, he wants to, if he wants a second-hand tractor, source it through the dealer network. A lot of our members, a lot of FDMTA members, would have they would have dealers in the UK that they've been dealing with maybe for at this stage, maybe generations, um, where they can rely on those guys to source good quality uh, tractors, send them over. It gives the customer here the security of dealing with, um, you know, dealing dealing with a, net, with a local dealer and having that bit of support. Obviously, if you buy in the UK, in the UK, looking at a private customer from Ireland, things you might never see this guy again. His the support isn't going to be there if you're broken down and three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon in May. Um, So
0: what's your message then, Gary, to our contractors who are in that mindset? Yeah, I
8: suppose, look, as a a trade association representing the the machinery industry, our thing would be to support support your local dealer. Um, and we think that that's a kind of a symbiotic relationship. You know, you're supporting the local dealer, but the local dealer will be there to support you when you've got your breakdown. And at least you you've you you're not buying a new tractor, and you're not you maybe you're not buying a, a tractor that has all the warranty and that of, of a of a, of a new tractor, but you still have that level of support from your local dealer, who you will be able to find when you're broken down at three o'clock. I think the currency, you know who knows what way Sterling is going to finish up and what way Brexit is going to finish up for that matter. But I suppose it's not unrealistic to think that that Sterling could weaken more. But in a a situation, if, if, for instance, the hard Brexit thing came back on this table, probably doesn't look as likely now, but certainly it would be next to nigh impossible, I think, to see see a private customer from here being able to navigate importing from what will effectively be a third country at that stage, whereas dealers will still be able to do that.
0: And Gary, new legislation for tractors at European level have come in as well, um, in recent years. And some of our viewers will be familiar with the with the mother regulations and uh, the regulations on emissions as well. Uh, just looking ahead, how will that potentially impact on the trade?
8: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's funny you look at all that legislation coming from Europe, and especially in the context of Brexit, is it a bit ironic? But the a lot of it is around emissions, as you say, and we've had that ongoing over a number of years. Where we're now at, we're looking at stage five, stage five final, um, which will come in at the end of the year. Uh, but we've been through, you know, we've had tier two, three, three A, three B, four. It's it's we've been we've been hit by a lot of them over the years. Um, Unfortunately, from the customer point of view, all that stuff does add cost um, and the average price of tractor, you know, has has undeniably risen significantly as a result. Um, The mother regulation, slightly different issue, is unrelated to uh, the tractor mother regulation, which came into force at the beginning of last year of 2018. Uh, it's a different. It's it's not related to emissions. A lot of it is related to safety. Um, it has wider implications as well outside of tractors into other forms of implements. Um, the the tractor mother regulation actually probably drove some of the tractor sales we saw at the start of last year because there would have been tractors that were no longer going to be compliant that had to be registered in time. And then we had the next stage, which was the tractor mother regulation two, which was kind of a, I suppose the second phase that kicked in at the beginning of this year. And in fact at the end of June this year, we'll have what they're calling 2-2. So it's the it's it's not a distinct part of the modular regulation, but it's the next wave. All this stuff does add to the cost of tractors. And um, I mean the, the the cost of tractors has risen has risen remarkably. Um, I suppose it's 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 uh, it's encouraging to see that the farmer is still making the investment. But part of that is, I think, as well, that the model of machinery ownership is changing. It's not as simple as buying and trading in. You're now looking at maybe the finance arrangements becoming very important around that as well.
0: Uh, Gary, we're going to have to leave it there. we out of time. Thanks very much for for look, coming into us. Look, thank you, Claire. Thank you. Uh, now, with grazing season underway in many parts, lameness can be an issue on farms. Here's Emma Gilsonen's report. A big problem on dairy farms is slopes. Slopes are commonly seen on farm roadways, entering or exiting an underpass and around the farmyard. Slopes not only affect cow flow, they can cause injury to a cow's feet or legs. We travelled to County Mead to see how one dairy farmer combated his farm's difficult gradient through the installation of steps.
8: This farm was converted from uh, beef and sheep to dairy in uh, 2016 and... uh, so it's uh, it's quite a difficult contours are quite steep. So the site that we got planning for for the milking parlour, um, there was a there was a 4.4 meter drop in the final 30 meters running into the milking parlour, and uh, it was just unfeasible to have the cows walking down that gradient. So steps was the only option really. And we had seen them in in, in a couple of underpasses in Ireland and had seen them abroad as well and they, they, we thought they worked very, very well.
5: Uh, the farm is sort of one of a kind. There's a lot of hills and it's, um, there's a lot of um, steep gradients down, let's say, and especially where we are the perfect site for our parlor, there was a big gradient down into the collecting yard. And we decided to put in steps because I've seen, we've seen on other farms where cows, let's say, on slopes and that, they become slippy. And cows are inclined to slip and fall, especially during the summer months and that when there's a skin on comes on it and um the steps there isn't, there's a flat surface there. So the cows really take to them really well. The first day we walked them out and like they tucked to them like a duck in water, like there was no, no hesitance about them at all. Like and even during the summer months where the other slopes at the front of the parlour and that, where it might be a skin of dirt might come on and it might become slippy, the steps are always there's a flat surface there and the cows go up and, up and down them. It's no problem. Oh, definitely going down a slope in, into a parlor. When you're dropping that much, I'd advise anyone that's dropping a big gradient down into anything, an underpass, a collecting yard, it's definitely a much better decision than pu- putting them down a uh, slope. No problems, um, they're just, um, you have to be aware that stones can come onto them like and you, when you're, when you are going up and down to them to, let's say, have a brush there, or a brush at the top of them and keep even the first few steps clear, that avoids them going down further. That's really it. So, and, but do know, they work very well in that respect.
0: Veterinary practitioner Ger Cusack from Cumra Veterinary Group down in Kilmakamas, County, Waterford, joins us now. Okay. Ger, thanks for coming up to us.
4: Very welcome, Clare.
0: Ger, can we start off by discussing some of the indicators of lameness in dairy cows?
4: Well, uh, it's not difficult to spot lame cows on most farm situations. They tend to be at the back of the group when when the uh, animals are at pasture, and uh, they're they're not difficult to spot. Uh, their yield will also be reduced, and uh, they're they're you know they're readily they're they're readily identified.
0: And so, what are some of the causes, Jeff What are the causes behind?
4: Okay, most of the lamenesses that we see are a result of uh, problems in the hoof, most and mostly the, the hind hoof, the back, the, the, the back hoofs of cows. And the most common conditions that we see are bruising of the hoof and a condition called white line. And uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's. A, there's um, I happen to have a hoof here with me today, and I bring, a, I, I bring this with me regularly. And uh, the uh, hoof wall grows from the top here down like this and the sole grows sorry yeah and the sole grows the straight lines out here and where they meet is this junction around here the edge the edge Mm -hmm. called uh, the white line and that's a very vulnerable part in the sole and we see lots of problems in the white line so and uh, the problems on the white line are as a result of stones and grit getting through this getting through this cemented junction here and uh, when, when they get in, so far then your cow goes lame. That's the most mm-hmm. common condition that we see.
0: Mm-hmm. And some of the causes of the the problems with the hoof.
4: Okay, poor surfaces, uh, poor roadways, rough yards are situations where cows are uh, don't have an opportunity to pick their pick where they place their feet, and they end up walking on stones or in rough areas, and they end up traumatizing the sole. You end know, up bruising on the sole or penetration of this white line.
0: And then what about genetics? Does, do genetics play a role as Genetic, well?
4: Genetics do play a role. But in the main, in the main, uh, the uh, biggest single factor is, is management factors. Mm-hmm. And the, 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 of, of the management factors, the biggest single factor is walking surfaces.
0: Mm-hmm. So and we saw in the, the VT earlier, we had a farmer who, who uh, built steps down on the yard to improve the surface for, for the cows. What kind of, based on your own experiences of being out on the ground, Ger, what infrastructure developments would you recommend on farms um, to prevent to prevent lameness? I suppose,
4: in the Irish context, the vast majority of cows spend most of their time grazed grazing. So the biggest single piece of infrastructure that a farmer needs to needs to consider in relation to lameness is his roadways and getting the surface of the roadways as, uh, uh, to as good a level as possible, uh, having uh, a camber on the roadway so the water doesn't stay on it, and uh, some fine material on top of the roadway so that when the cow walks on the roadway that if there, if there are any loose pebbles or, or, or stones that are likely to damage her foot, that the uh, stone or the pebble goes down into the surface of the roadway, rather than damaging her foot. Like if she walks on a stone on concrete or on a very hard roadway, she's going to bruise her foot when she stands on that stone.
0: Jerry, you mentioned about the cost implications. It is quite costly for the farmer when they have, um, when, when lameness is a problem. Yeah,
4: UCD did, did, did some interesting research about 10 years ago, and their finding was that uh, th- the cost of the average case of lameness was the, of the order of 300 euros. And they broke that down into 50 euros treatment cost, that could be a hoof trimmer, it could be the vet or it could be the farmer treating treating himself, uh, 100 euros in terms of milk yield, uh, 100 euros in terms of additional culling, their finding was that 10% of cows that went lame got culled, so if it cost 1000 euros to cull a cow and if you had 10% of the cows that go lame getting culled, that was a cost of 100 euros per lame in this case. And a further 50 euros in terms of losses around fertility. Cows that go lame, especially in the seasonal breeding herd, uh, during the breeding season, they're less likely to go on calf. It takes, it, it takes longer uh, to get them in calf. They're less likely to show heat and uh, they're less likely to conceive. So when they added all those costs together, they ended up with a total cost of 300 euros per lameness case, which is a significant cost.
0: What are some of the other preventative measures that farmers could adopt on farm? Um, for bathing, um, yeah. mobility scoring, is that okay. a big...
4: Okay, well I, I, I think another preventative measure that would, could be very easily adopted on farms is to allow cows as much time as possible. Cows are careful animals, they're not risk takers, they're prey animals, so they're used to being careful. So if cows are allowed plenty of time to walk on the roadways, when they're when they're being brought in in the evening, or or um, when they're leaving when when they're leaving the parlour after milking, and allowed plenty of time to pick their steps and to avoid the hazards. If you have situations where cows are being rushed with a quad bike or a, or an aggressive dog, cows are pushed along with their heads up in the air. They're not checking the ground. A normal cow she walks with her head down, checking the ground. She places her front foot in a safe place and she places the back foot in exactly the same place. So where they have uh, plenty of time. To find a safe passage, they will uh, avoid a lot of the pebbles and the stones, and they will uh, thereby uh, reduce the, the foot traumas. Like a lot of these problems are down to foot traumas. So if we could reduce all the foot traumas, all the all the small traumas, uh, we would end up with far less lameness.
0: Ger, thank you. We'll leave it there. Very useful insights, and thanks for coming into us. Thanks very much,
4: Claire. Thanks for the invitation.
0: That's it for this week's show. If you want to get in touch with the story, reach out to us on any of our platforms.